Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Pretty good to have you back on, man. Yeah, man. I'm excited to be here. It's been awesome. great. And, uh... Yeah, I heard you guys about my background, right? So yes. background, and I know your deal is you do some women's hormones stuff. So I got a right, that's a good looking bunch of perimenopausal woman sitting behind me. So I think we'll get into that topic a little bit. I'm breathing hey, hard, so Zach. I don't know if Zach told you I just got done. Uh, it sounds like it's a successful rowing. I had 15. Oh, I had like 10 minutes to go do a quick rowing, rowing workout, and so I'm just knocking out a quick little over 500 meters as hard as I can. I want to live vicariously through you since I, I get to watch you at um, all these photos that are taking at these, these expos and events. And it looks like you're, they feed you really well. They all these do, man, I'll tell you, that's one night's nice thing. You know, my, my, my goal, if I have no other accomplishments in life, it should be to eat a bunch of free steaks. Oh my God. I mean, all these Brazilian <laughs> steakhouses that, you know, I'm sure they're like going, we didn't make any money off of that guy at all. That's right. right. Yeah, I'm, I'll advertise for him. Maybe I can get him, maybe I can hook up a deal, get, get a deal with Fogo de Chao and South. Right. I'll, I'll I think it's sponsored sponsor our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah. Anyway, Jay, it's a pleasure having you back on. I know a lot of people really enjoyed the last show. Um, for those that want to know who you are, we're referring back to that last show. To, and that was, when did we do that, Jack? We did that about six, about eight months ago, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, let me check what episode Zach, number that was. So they can refer back. And uh, you have been, uh, since that time, and even before then, you've become a pretty vocal proponent of diet and lifestyle as, as a method to help with disease and, you know, including some of the regular stuff, though. But just to clarify, I mean, you are... I mean, I would say you are kind of a more or less a women's health and hormone specialist, lifestyle person. Would that would that be fair to characterize yeah. your, your sort of practice? Certainly. I, you know, after 23 years of doing this, my specialty certainly is in uh, peri and postmenopausal women and hormonal balancing. And now that I've taken on this new you know this new role of blending that into metabolic health, it's it's been an you know, I'm, I'm so excited to do this with you today because so much has happened since the last time we talked about because I am now seeing clearly the results of, of positioning what I was doing before with what we talk about now and moving people closer and closer to a carnivore diet and watching spectacular results take place because of the blending of, of, of both. And um, so it's, it's really exciting. Yeah, I want to because I mean, I will tell you, I mean, the menopausal woman is a tough cookie to crack. I mean, a lot of say, I mean, there's a lot of women that really, really struggle, particularly around things like weight gain and just, you know, the way they feel in general. And menopause does a number on a lot of women. And sure. um, I think it's just something that, uh, you know, it's unavoidable for the most part. I don't know. They're, they're, I guess there's some accounts of women that, that, that kind of maintain fertility into their early 60s and stuff like that. But for most women, you know, 45 to 55 that's kind of the age they're going to experience this. And so can you just kind of walk us through what's going on during menopause, some of the things that cause what we seem to happen, and then we can yeah. talk about how metabolic 
processes may impact this perhaps? Right. So, um, so again, that, that's a great question because what we're seeing is that, you know, for the first thing I want to get these women to understand, uh, you know, from my point of view, that this is not, um, this is, this is not a tragedy, nor is it a, a, a disease state. This is, this is a natural progression into a woman's life where the body no longer wants to support having a baby. And what's got this thing, what's going to be interesting to circle this conversation around back to Sean and, and Zach is that, is that what, what makes it such a sometimes treacherous transition is all plays back into this same conversation that we have on a daily basis with our clients is that it's, it's this modern lifestyle of refining of food and, um, you know, eating a junk food based diet and way too much, you know, not an emphasis on good quality protein and high quality fat, but all of this carbohydrate rich nature. And even the, you know, even the, you know, the people that are eating vegetarian diets or whatnot, um, it, it, it doesn't support what's transitioning at this period of time. So anyway, to, to get back to what you're talking about. So what's going on here is sometime in the early 40s, sometimes it's going to happen in the late 30s. But so let's, let's say that for most, in the most part, um, a woman, by the time she hits about 42 years old, she's beginning to make her first transition into this perimenopausal state. Now, what that really means in a Western medical world is that the ovaries are beginning to lose their ability to produce sufficient amounts of this one hormone called progesterone. Um, she's still making plenty of estrogen because she's having periods every month. So we know that she is still making plenty of estrogen, but her progesterone levels are falling. And what happens there is that it's not about the amounts. This is why blood testing and a lot of testing for women's hormones don't really mean all that much. It's not so much about the amount of the level. What it is is that the ratio between these two hormones of estrogen and progesterone is beginning to get further and further apart. And since progesterone antagonizes estrogen um, without sufficient progesterone, now you have this, this, this automatically created what we call an estrogen dominant state. And this leads to everything from mood swings to inability to lose body fat to problems with insomnia to, um, lack of mental acuity and focus and all of this kind of stuff. Uh, and so the women begin to know their life is shifting. Now, you know, how we would know that is we get contacted by people who's going, what the hell just happened? Because I used to be able to go on a diet for 10 days and lose, you know, 10 pounds or whatnot. Now, no matter what I do, I can't lose, I can't drop this body fat. So there's this metabolic effect that starts to begin to happen as these hormones begin to decline because each one of the three primary hormones that we'll talk about, progesterone, estrogen, and testosterone, all have a metabolic effect. And as they begin to decline through peri and postmenopause, now it's almost like you've got one hand tied behind your back. And if you're eating a, a diet high in carbohydrate food, which is producing triglycerides and being stored away as body fat, and you've already suppressed your, you know, naturally suppressed somewhat of your metabolism because of the declining of these hormones, um, it makes it much, 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 much tougher. So one of the first things that you've got to do is, you know, thank God we know this now, that we have this, uh, this ability to, to transition into uh, a step towards at least a ketogenic diet, and then maybe even further for a lot of these women to reset that metabolism and get them back to being able to burn body fat um, in the in in the lack of presence of these declining hormones. 
Jim, I'm just just kind of wondering because you talk about you know the, the the initiation of menopause is sort of a result of the women no longer being able to safely bring to bring to fruition a, a child, right? And so, you know, something's going on that's telling their body that hey, we can't we can't support babies anymore. And I wonder, you know, and this is all speculation, if it's right. just you know, as we know, as we age, a lot of times our digestive system starts to lose our capacity to absorb nutrition. Uh, maybe that leads to a suboptimally nourished state for some of these women. Uh, maybe maybe precipitating you know menopause earlier than it might be. I mean, I've seen cases of vegan girls going into menopause in their twenties, uh, which is very alarming and should be alarming to most people. And I think it may you know may indicate that there is some sort of you know state that the body senses that hey, we just don't have any more you know, enough nourish enough nutritional reserves to support a new life. And therefore it's time to shut down, you know, our production of, you know, these hormones and, 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 and kind of initiate the menopause cascade. Is that, is that, am I just sounding crazy talking about that? Or is there, or is there any, you think there's anything that may, may think that, to delaying think menopause or having menopause at a later age, if, you know, if nutrition is, is on point for a longer period of time and, and, sure. di and digestion keeps up. So let's put it this way. You're, 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 you know, you're, you're, you're right on point because um, sadly enough that you're, you're absolutely right. I, I see this on a daily basis of women who come in who are you know, adamant about thinking that um, I, I'm extremely healthy because I eat a vegan diet, let's say. But the one, you know, the, the, they might mention that, you know, but I, don't, I have irregular cycles and sometimes I'll, I skip them for six months or whatnot. And, and how this plays into what you just framed sean is this all right so let's look at the bio the simple biochemistry here you're all of these hormones that we're talking about in 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 a, in a woman and and in and, and peri and post menopause or even younger are derived from cholesterol they are i mean they have to be manufactured first out of cholesterol transitioned into something called pregnenolone and from there it gets transitioned into progesterone and then all of your other hormones, estrogen, testosterone, all this is made from this one building block that all came from cholesterol. So these women, and not even just the vegans, but these women who have been leading down this lifestyle of eating a low fat diet and wonder why they either have problems with infertility or irregular menstrual cycles or this estrogen dominance that I'm talking about, it's completely nutritionally related and it's about a a nutrient lack of nutrient dense food that comes from you know what we would um, you know support of that you need to be eating a diet that's well substantiated in protein and the good quality of fat that comes along with this this is what provides hormonal health and anybody who is out on the other side of this making some kind of uh, you know, this decree or cry for that the, the vegan way of life or even the vegetarian way of life is a healthier choice. Not internally, it's not, not for your hormones, it's not. It, you, you need these building blocks of really good quality fat and protein in your diet in order to drive these pathways. So again, what you're saying is we're seeing so much infertility now at younger and younger ages and, and, and menstrual cycle dysfunction and all this kind of stuff. It is because it, it's two part. One of it is psychological or the people that decide because they're doing something better for the planet, which we know is not true. The other is these bad guidelines that we got back 50 years ago that said you need to decrease saturate, saturated fat in your diet. And you need to increase carbohydrates. Um, 
and it turns people into a hormonal hormonal wreck, including the other hormones that we talk a lot about, like insulin um, and, and glucagon and all these types of things. So we've created a soup of a hormonal disaster. And and, and again, I look at it as a, a um, you know, a, a something that we have the opportunity now to direct people back to what it's like to have really good hormonal health through eating a better diet and exercising in a certain way. And um, so I'm going to choose to take the positive spin as I know that you do, because we, we can show people that women don't have to have that experience. They don't have to, when they get 50 years old, you know, feel like they're aging at a, at a rapid rate that's not the way that it has to be but a lot of it has to do with this uh, with this diet steps. hey uh, jay just just to kind of further into this because you know what we see that women that go through early menopause you know and, and this includes these gals that are eating a crappy diet and they go into independent pause in the late 20s and late 30s they decrease their, their mortality their, their their survivability they have a, they have shorter longevity they increase the risk for cardiovascular disease and they increase the risk for osteoporosis and Absolutely. fracture related problems so you know hanging on to that sort of delaying that menopause to, to at least a natural time, you know, rather than having it early is associated with a number of good things. Now, there are some associations with breast cancer, which kind of put a confounder in that, that, you know, early menopause may protect you from breast cancer. So some of that data exists, but I just think that's, it's important to realize that, you know, it is important to maintain that fertility for a long period of time for more than just, you know, if you want to have a baby in your thirties or forties, but Absolutely. I think it's important for overall health. But let's talk about you know, say you've got a woman that's 48, 47, you know, they're, they're coming into this and, you know, they're, 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 they're putting on the weight. They can't get rid of it. They're tired. They, they get all the typical perimenopausal symptoms. How do they mitigate that? I mean, I mean, obviously we can talk about diet and I think that's important, but what's, what's, a, what's a comprehensive package look like for, for a woman walks into your office and says, Hey, this sucks. I mean, I'm just, I, I just don't feel like I, I am. I feel like a different person. I feel miserable. How do you approach that person? Yeah, so um, in a number of different ways. One is it, it really, first of all, what I've got to get straightened out with a woman is where does she stand on issues like, uh, do, do, you know, do we need to have a conversation about uh, the benefits of something like bioidentical HRT, um, which I find to be, you know, a, a lot of times a, a godsend for these women. Because again, there's been a lot of bad information in the press and, and, and even in medicine about uh, about hormones, and rightfully so, because back in the day where the option was to put a woman on something like Primpro or Primarin, which was this, you know, basically synthetically mimicked uh, compound of estrogen that was first derived from, you know, horse urine, basically, ended up being kind of a disaster, because if you had cancer cells growing in your body, and you douse them with something like Primarin, it's kind of like throwing gasoline on a fire. But it's not the same conversation when we're talking about bioidentical, you know, estrogen, let's say uh, estradiol, which is, you know, derived from usually a plant source. Uh, but it is, is, it's identical to the estrogen that this woman has been, you know, secreting in her system forever. And for any doctor to claim that a woman's own estrogen is, um, you know, is a risk factor, I, I take issue with that. So anyway, to answer your question, all right, so that would be the, the, the extreme would be if we need to go there, um, this, can be, this, this, this can be a viable option for women. A lot of women come to see me because they, would, they don't want to even, you know, look at that. What are my other options? Well, the first option you is, is that the better and cleaner that you eat, and what I'm finding 
you know, which is exciting about being here with you again, is I'm finding that the, the more and more that we remove plant food from the diet. Now, not to say that there aren't some plants foods that are, that are benign and I don't see an issue with, but the closer that we go to a pure diet of high quality remnant protein and fat, the better I see uh, symptomatic relief from all types of menopausal symptoms. And so th that right there is the first line defense of if you're looking for the best thing that you can do for yourself, let's get moving in the direction of removing more and more carbohydrate from your food and eating good quality protein and fat. Then, then, you know, as you would know, um, you know, I'm a big proponent of for, I, I need tools sometimes outside of diet. And so, you know, I do function in that world of, uh, nutritional or nutraceutical supplementation. And so I find that it can be very advantageous for a woman going through these shifts to utilize things like a good quality fish oil, maybe some magnesium glycinate. Um, sometimes we might even use something like, um, you know, a, a, a precursor to your body's being able to produce more testosterone. So we might use something like some pharmaceutical grade DHEA or something like that. But so th there's a lot of options for these women. But again, wh what I want to highlight is it's unbelievable, even so from the last time that we spoke, what I am seeing prove out on a daily basis of how much of this can be handled just by changing your eating habits. Hey, Jay, yeah. just a couple of follow-up questions on that. And yeah. for listeners who are curious, your, your last episode of this was episode 33. So it is surprising how long ago that was <laughs> right. standpoint. Uh, we're getting close to a hundred episodes between that. Nice. But um, yeah. So are you seeing such a lot of cases of women coming in who are trying to have, have children or just are not able to do it. And then when they're switching their diet around all of a sudden are able to, to get pregnant or are you dealing more with, you know, women who are kind of past that stage in their life? Okay, so but so both. I, I definitely deal, you know, quite a bit with uh, infertility issues, and and I and yes, a lot of times what will happen is, but that's not the you know, this the spotlight of why they came to see me. What what happens frequently, Zach, is that I will see somebody who tells me something like, um, you know, they might just come to see me because they're dealing with that menopausal weight gain and frustration of they can't lose this weight, and I'll I'll, I'll work mainly on diet and metabolism and straightening that out only to find out later that they you know, told me that, hey, you know, while we were doing this, I'd never mentioned it to you, but I had all of these, um, you know, all of my autoimmune disorder and infl inf inflammation problems or whatnot are clearing up. And by the way, I just got pregnant. Right? You know, that usually would be somebody, you know, in their, in their mid forties or something who was never expecting to ever be fertile again or something like that. So we look at that and we go, okay, again, checklist for, a woman who's dealing with infertility really wants to get pregnant, but hasn't been able to. Um, diet's got to play a role in that therapeutic protocol. I mean, it should anyway. It should be, you know, let's get really good quality fat and protein in your diet to give your ovaries a better chance for being able to, you know, to, to, to do this. And it's, it's, um, it's amazing how much it's working out. Yeah, Jay, I like the way you talked about, you know, and, and obviously I'm a proponent of a meat-based diet, but I, I always temper that, and, and I gave a presentation, and I said, what is a carnivore diet? And I say it's a diet that focuses on animal-based nutrition, uh, but eliminates or, or limits plants as needed for health. And I think we need to realize that, you know, there are some people that did tolerate, you know, a little bit of carbohydrate, a little plant in their diet, and that's fine. I think we should be accepting of that, and, and, and for long-term compliance, it probably makes it better, but to put the focus on 
the animal fat and the animal protein is key and essential. And I think that's, that's a big component of what we're missing when we're being directed into these turning meat into a condiment. I mean, that's like turning nutrition into a condiment in my mind. And I think we have to get away from that knowledge. And I, and I applaud that more and more physicians are, are open-minded enough to test it out and, and see what the results are and report the results. So talk to us about some of the surprising successes you had and talk to us about how you get women to buy into this all of a sudden, you know, eating steak is not, not going not, not gonna, to you know, give them cancer and make them drop dead tomorrow of a heart attack. Right. It's still a challenge, you know, because again, I don't find so much the uh, challenge anymore in getting people to move more into a, a meat-based diet as I find that women, if you do not have a direct blunt conversation to them in the beginning, what they are going to do is they're going to go out and start eating chicken. And it's going to be chicken for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And that's not a good game plan for so many reasons. First of all, chicken is probably, to me anyway, it's at the bottom of the list of, of good nutrition as far as animal protein. It's you know, way too high in omega-6 fat and whatnot. So anyway, you know, we would know about that. But again, so what, what I, um, where I focus on this is exactly what you just said. I let the conversation about whether or not you need to be carnivore or not play out of my emphasis is on um, high quality protein and fat. And we start there. And I'm, I'm like, in, in order to do this, the, the only way that I see that you're going to do this is I start with, um, to me, the supreme animal protein and fat combination in, in, out there today would be of the ruminant category. For, for those of you who might not be familiar with what that is, is basically um, these are four-legged animals that, including cattle, beef, uh, venison, lamb, um, goat, uh, elk, things like this. Um, this is superior, superior quality nutrition. So I get people to focus on, we need, we need to, you know, I'm a big proponent, Sean, I guess I should backtrack for a second of, I think that roughly if you're trying to establish metabolic health and hormonal health, that you have got to be at least in that realm of one gram of protein per one pound of desired body weight. So if I had a woman I'm dealing with who weighs, you know, 200 pounds, wants to weigh 145, I've got to start with, you need 145 grams of protein in your diet minimum. Um, that's if you're sedentary. If you're going to be exercising, throwing around heavy stuff, we might even need to go higher than that. So one of the things that I find maybe easy about the conversation that you asked is once I get them to realize it's going to take 145 grams of protein and they realize that, wow, I don't, there's no other way I'm going to be able to accomplish this without eating some red meat in my diet, right? I mean, you know, it's just not going to work. You're not going to be able to eat enough almonds or um, even, you know, even enough poultry would be ridiculous to think we're going to be able to drive those amounts. So I think, you know, we turned it into a conversation where here's, all right, let's look at outcome that we want. Let's look at what's your best possibility to getting there. And then, and then the other things begin to fall in place. Okay. We need Miss Jones. We need 150 grams of protein in your diet a day. We, and we want that to be high quality protein that's got a pretty good balance between omega-3 and omega-6, um, nutrient dense or whatnot. That brings up the conversation, well, how do you do that? Well, you know, let's look at how you do that. Um, starts with, you're gonna need steak in your diet. Um, you know, I also encourage people to start playing around with the idea that a little bit of organ meat in your diet is probably a good idea. And there's ways to, 
you know, I'm, I'm thankful for this community of people who are starting to put out information of how to, how to do these things that I don't have the time to teach people. I'm still learning them myself as far as organ meats or whatnot, but I'm, I'm finding fascinating ways that are people are trying to uh, educate people how to, to once a week deliver a little bit of liver into your diet when you don't really want to eat that. I saw somebody the other day talking about, you know, blending it up, putting it in ice trays, turning it into something that's cold and then um, just basically swallowing a small ice cube of this and you're getting liver in your diet. I think it's fantastic. You know, it's moving people in the right direction of, you know, of this nutrient density, which again, to me, leads to better hormonal balance, better energy production, things like that. So Jay, one thing that I find interesting when we have the MDs on the show is when they're working with their patients, one thing they start with is they're looking at lifestyle medicine first as kind of the primary target. And then they're working with, okay, I have to meet this patient where they're at, and then we'll ultimately get to where, where maybe is ideal. So when you're kind of utilizing a uh, an animal-based diet for a patient, is there like, what is like the range of kind of uh, maybe percentages of animal-based foods versus plant-based foods that you're kind of working with with people? Is there like a, maybe like you got obviously on the one end of the spectrum, a hundred percent carnivore where they're eating only animal-based products. Right. But is there like a low end to that that you're seeing where they're still getting quite a bit of success? Like if they're 70% animal-based or something like that? Well, Zach, I guess the way I would say that is this. What I find is when if, if I'm dealing with someone who clearly is not insulin resistant or metabolically broken, I find that these people can do, you know, Again, a lot of this would have to do with their activity level, and you would know this as an athlete, but um, you know, what I would find for the, the, the typical person who's not metabolically broken or insulin resistant, they can probably, yeah, they, they probably can function pretty well on 50 grams of carbohydrate a day if they have no digestive issues, no signs of inflammation throughout their gut. Um, but that, to me, that's kind of like the, if you're going to work with me, we're, we're, we're more than likely never going to go higher than 50 grams of carbohydrate a, a, a day, unless again, you know, you would be an exception to that. I would think, you know, again, I'm not sure exactly what your diet is, but if I had somebody who was performing at the level that you do, um, who wasn't metabolically broken and has no real interest in being a complete carnivore you know, then, then we might bounce that around a little bit. You know, if, if, again, I don't have a problem with anybody telling me that my health is doing fantastically and I eat more of a paleo diet, you know? Mm -hmm. If you come to me and say, I eat sweet potatoes and a little bit of rice or whatnot, but you're lean, functioning well, have beautiful mental clarity, don't have any risk factors, um, you know, wh why do we have a problem with that? So I, again, what I would say, so I think to answer your question, it might be a better to answer it this way, I probably fall into more of a category right now in my thinking as somebody like a Mark Sisson, who would say the ultimate goal, I believe, for human beings should be metabolic flexibility, you know, where, where, you, where you really wouldn't, you know, and again, I would say, you know, to me, I bet Sean, even though he doesn't maybe do this, I would bet that Sean could probably go out and, you know, eat, devour a couple of sweet potatoes one night without that this is going to do some severe damage to you know what it is that he's laying out i'm just using that as an example of again get to the point where if your ch your choice is to stay 
where you are and eat, you know, whether it be a carnivore diet or very close to it or whatnot. What, what I believe is people, when they get there, they choose to stay there. And that's mm -hmm. a good place for them. But at the same time, what's also interesting and exciting is they've gotten themselves maybe back to a point where, you know, on occasion, out for a birthday party or whatnot, they do not have to worry about a little bit of indulgence sends them back into a wrecked, you know, inflammatory state and metabolism. So I, I work with that in mind with patients and say, what I'm interested in is correcting your metabolism and getting you, you know, shutting down the inflammation or whatnot. In order to do that, I'm finding myself more and more going, at least in the beginning, using the carnivore as an elimination, thinking that we will approach this at some point of adding some plant food back if that's what you've been missing and you desire at the time where I believe that you'll be able to handle that well. But again, what I'm finding, and I think that you guys probably find, is once people see the unbelievable results that they get from either, either going very low carb or zero carb, they don't want to go back. You know, you could almost, you get to the point where you could almost offer them and say, it's time now you can go back and they will go, not in a million years. Not, I'm, not, I'm not changing what, and that's what's really exciting to watch. Yeah, no, I, I can imagine. And I, I think you're right too, where like, when you look at the lifestyle context, that's huge. It's, I always end up trying to dig deeper when people ask me questions about what I'm doing, because, you know, usually they're not training for an extreme endurance event. And um, if they are, they can maybe glean a little more from, from my protocol versus theirs, or at least play around with some stuff. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, in, you know, I more or less have been hitting probably around 80 to 90% animal based products in, in my diet. And then when I'm sprinkling in any of the, the plant based or the plant products, it's kind of usually near kind of peaking for a race where I'm bringing in a little more other stuff. And, you know, sometimes that's like a potato, you know, white rice, raw honey, some fruits like melons and berries and things like that. So um, my kind of follow-up question was, because you mentioned earlier, was that uh, for some of your patients, there's some like more benign plant-based foods that aren't causing as much trouble. Is there kind of a trend as to certain ones that typically end up being those, or is it just an individual scenario for that? Well, you know, it's an individual scenario, but what I would say is that, you know, right off the top of my head, the ones that, the ones that I would certainly support and even do in my diet sometime is I would start with things like, I, you know, I, I feel like a, a, like an avocado is fairly benign for most people. I think that most of the cruciferous vegetables, if they are not eaten raw, like Brussels sprouts or a little bit of broccoli or something like that, that's steamed. Is, is fairly benign. I'm starting to pay more and more attention to what I would have included in that category probably the first time that we spoke would be, hey, you know what, if you really get into eating spinach or some kale or whatever, now my, you know, through my own education and application, I would say I'm, I, I'm starting to lean a little bit more, you know, towards uh, Georgia Eads idea that these high oxalate foods that we used to think as fairly benign might just actually be more of a problem than they're even worse. So I don't even recommend that anymore. I, you know, I basically, I don't tell them they can't eat it, but you know, I'm not a big fan of, of going out loading up on spinach because you think it's this dark leafy green that's providing all of these health benefits for you. 
that probably are canceled out by the high content of either oxalates, lectins, these other anti-nutrients and things like that. So you're not really getting the bang for the buck that, that people were selling you on. So that's how I would put that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think that's, that's a reasonable way to think it. We, you know, we got to realize that there are good and bad. You know, you can get some nutrition from different sources and, you know, you get some problems with that. I mean, your, your comment about whether I would tolerate things, you know, I've, you know, I've had things from here and there, you know, from time to time, I'll have a glass of wine from now and again, that's obviously, you know, it's got stuff in there and it doesn't really affect me any negatively. I mean, I did some experiments with my blood sugar doing like rice and, and bananas and I didn't feel bad. It didn't upset my digestion. It made my blood sugar go up pretty high. But I mean, sure. I mean, other than that, you know, I think I'm pretty resent, resilient. I mean, I just personally, you know, still testing this, seeing what I can push. And, and it's, some of it's more almost experimental in my case. You know, it's not that I think I'll die if I eat a sweet potato. There are people clearly out there that, that are very sensitive and, and do have those issues. And so I think we just have to realize that there, there's, there's a, there is a percentage we don't know what the percentage is where those things are very problematic but i do think you know what you're saying is is very pragmatic and realistic and i think if you want to get more people you know if you want to get more people to to, to start eating more meat and fats which i think is an ideal thing and an important part to put in the diet we we have to say we we don't have to be restrictive all the time or maybe we do it for a temporary period and then see what we can add back in i think that's a very easy sale it's kind of like the people that are trying to, and this is the opposite, because the people that are now telling you to go to vegan, most people say, no, I'm not going to do that because that sounds crazy and stupid. So now they're telling you, you know, like uh, Mark Hyman, just make meat a condiment. Just do that. Just cut back. You know, and that's an easier sell. And I think that's more dangerous in Absolutely. my view, because we're now we're, we're doing something that people might buy into. Right. They're more apt to cut back their meat consumption once or twice a week rather than go vegan. And right. so I think that to me is, like I said, almost as destructive as some of this other stuff. And so I think we have to go the opposite way and say, no, meat should make up the majority of your diet. And then this other stuff can be done as flavoring, as variety, as, you know, whatever. whatever yeah, I mean, another way to frame that would be that you want to crowd your diet with the most nutrient dense food, right? And, and that, that should be the thing. And you brought up a great point with Mark Hyman and the, and the direction some of these people are moving. What are, what, what they're not, what they're not focused on is this is what got us into the problem in the first place. Because when we started this whole, you need to reduce fat in your diet. Well, there, the, the thing is, is that's got to be replaced by something, right? So it got ended up being replaced with, with sugar and refined carbohydrate because you couldn't make anything taste any good without the presence of fat in it. Right? So you're right. We're walking down a Dan dangerous, slippery slope with people saying, make meat more of a condiment, well, then the rest of your diet is going to be full of something. And that's something that you have to crowd to, to make up for that replacement of the diminishing of something like the meat is more of a problem than it is than, than a benefit to you. Yeah, I mean, if we look at what are, what are essential to the human diet, we've got essential amino acids, essential fats, we've got vitamins and minerals, and that's it. And, and you get all of that in an animal, you know, particularly if you add in organ meats. And so you know, I mean, to say that you, we need to focus our diet on stuff that doesn't provide that, you know, that to me becomes, you know, you're like putting, you're taking the, nutri the nutrition or the reason for nutrition, the reason for eating out of nutrition. You know, you're saying eat this, you know, indigestible fiber, eat these phytonutrients, which we have no, we have no physiological need for in the case that they might provide a hormetic effect. I mean, they're basically just being detoxified and that's the only purpose they really serve. I think, you know, I, I tend to treat it as, and not to take away from the the focus on women's health because we need yeah, to get back here, but I turn to you know take it as 
you know, you meet, you know, meat is your nutrition, you know, animal products are your nutrition and the rest of the stuff is flavoring. And, and if you, if you continue, if you, you approach it that way, I think it will be a pretty uh, wise way to do it. But let's, yeah. uh, let's get back more into this women's health stuff because I want to know, um, you know, I mean, we talked about diet, we talked about, you know, maybe, maybe there's some, some, uh, uh, you know, supplements you can do, maybe some pre hormone precursors some bioidentical hormones. You touched on a little bit about strength training. Let's talk a little bit about that for women. Cause a lot of women are, are, are told to, you know, walk on the treadmill and eat the salads. What's your thought on that? Yeah. So, um, well, you know, it's an easy one in, in, in the big picture because the, the, you know, the women and, and, and again, not trying to say that this is uh, it, it's hard in, in the nature of the work that I do, Sarnak, because it almost sounds like I'm saying that it's, it's, you know, that you're somewhat handicapped if you're a female. It's not that way, but, but let's be honest. A woman is far more susceptible to getting osteoporosis than, than men are. And that is because that testosterone is probably more prevalent and more dominant in men, although women need a certain amount of it. And when that begins to decline for a woman, along with estrogen and progesterone, you, you've got a, you know, you got a big, you know, a big possibility here that you could be on your way to osteoporosis. And what we know is that the medical community, and you would know this more than anybody as an orthopedic surgeon, that the medical community has this thing so upside down um, that ester, you know, that's things like that osteoporosis has something to do with a calcium deficiency. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Calcium is the most abundant thing in anybody's diet. I don't care how badly they eat or how well they eat. You don't get calcium deficient and not, not usually you can, but the other side of that calcium has something to do with treat the treatment of osteoporosis, which is completely a hormonally driven process really that relies on um, muscular tendon strength or whatnot. So anyway, to circle back into what you're asking, this is the only exercise that I would recommend for women that are peri and postmenopausal that I work with is that forget the aerobics and the cardiovascular stuff. You need to be training and, and, and moving heavy things around because this elicits a hormonal response that regenerates, you know, not only muscular tissue, joint tissue, tendon tissue, but, but, but bone strength and health. So this is, this is clearly the way to go. So when you, and again, to tie that back into the dietary piece is that again, you've heard me talk a lot about the only hormone that we know of in the body right now that I know of anyway, that has the ability to generate that, that turns on these, these cells called osteoclasts that lay down new bone is progesterone. So when you're eating, like if we go back and look at that, that idea we talked about in the beginning, when you're eating a low animal-based diet, when you're not supplying good quality fat into your diet to, to let your liver turn that through this mechanism of its own cholesterol to be produced into steroid hormone, you're lacking in progesterone for doing that, you now don't have the ability to really stimulate this osteoclastic activity. So that's setting you up for this osteoporosis. So again, this all circles back around that if you want the perfect regimen for somebody who's trying to ward off osteoporosis or already is osteoporotic, then you want, you want strength training and you want a prevalent animal-based diet with lots of good quality protein and fat in it. I mean, it's just the way to go. Now for a word from our sponsors. All right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. 
ButcherBox offers you convenience by delivering your meat right to your door with free shipping. They also offer quality by having options such as 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, heritage breed pork, and free-range chicken. They also offer value with their goal to make clean meat accessible to as many people as possible by partnering with a collective of small farms. They are able to deliver you the best products for less than $6 per meal. They often run promos on their website for subscribers to get things like free pork or free bacon. If you enter promo code HPO at checkout, you can also knock an additional $20 off your first subscription. So head over to butcherbox.com and place your first order. Now back to the show. Yeah, I can't agree more. I mean, that's something we had Don Lehman on the stu- on the show uh, a couple weeks back talking about that very thing about, you know, the fact that protein is incredibly important for bone health. I mean, our, our, you know, our bone is basically made out of protein. It's got some minerals deposited upon it. And so we, we see that. And, and there's plenty of evidence in the, in the literature showing that animal, animal protein protects against fragility, fractures, and osteoporosis. And so we need to get that message out there. And it's not the calcium because we, you know, we basically, the body's very good at shuttling minerals where we need them you know we, we we were you know it's very rare to see somebody with a serum calcium deficiency or potassium or sodium i mean those things are unusual i mean it's you know there's there's a very delicate balance it's like changing our ph people talk about an acid diet changing your ph where your ph is tightly regulated as you know between 735 and 745 because we have functioning lungs kidneys and a bicarb system so sure. i mean it's just this this whole thing that you know we've got to we've got to get this calcium for bones i think is a mis- misnomer so let's talk about uh, some of the perimenopausal or menopausal symptoms when women complain about hot flashes you know d- decreased sleep um you know malaise uh weakness weight gain how how have you found that diet or other things are impacted? I'm really curious. Obviously, I'm, I'm a proponent of a diet, but how do you find the diet has been impacting that for for the average woman that you put on it, and what kind of results are you seeing? Yeah. So um, what what I'm seeing and continually seeing, Sean, is that that again, it, it all it circles back around the same thing that we're talking about when the diet is. Uh, when the diet is adequate and nutrient dense food, and again, to me and, and to you, that would mean basically the predominance of the diet is, is protein and fat. It, it's, it's delivering the building blocks that are missing, that are, that are filling in these missing pathways that lead to these, um, you know, we'll call this for, for women who don't understand what we might be talking about. These, these, neuro and vasodilation patterns that lead to things like uh, hot flashes, night sweats. Um, again, what, what, one of the things that I, I see on a constant basis is the sleep disruption that begins to happen late perimenopause into menopause. What I have pretty much decided, again, this is speculation, but I think I'm on to something here, and I think other doctors would agree with me, is that this again is a sign of 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 poor nutrient dense food in your diet because the way that I see this is that these this insomnia that begins to happen that constantly happens between two and three in the morning seems to have something to do with anyway I believe that the liver is not being fed sufficiently of nutrient dense food and during that period of time when you're sleep and the liver is most actively involved in the cleaning and 
and, and the metabolic processes that it does while you're asleep to clean your bloodstream and all of these things. It's doing this without adequate nutrition. And the reason that I believe this to be true is because I can straighten this problem out a lot by getting people to eat higher quality protein, especially from red meat with some uh, with, with a better fat content in their diet, which we know would be feeding the liver at a, at, at a, at a better pace and, and a, better, a better quality. And what begins to happen is these symptoms of this two to three waking up period of time gets, gets better. And so does um, the hot flashes, the night sweats, even the, uh, the, 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 mood, the, the, the moods that bounce around during this period of time. All of this begins to get better when you just feed the body what, it, what it's been looking for, obviously. I mean, we can put it that way. It's, it seems like we're just now coming upon, should have known this forever, that, that so much of what we're seeing that's disrupting people, including peri- and postmenopausal women, is really just a sign of lack of adequate nutrition at a cellular and an organ-based level. Because when you supply it what it needs in a good quality form, and, and again, some of this would be that you're crowding out, that you're also, if you're doing that, you're also... You're also eating lower on some stuff that probably was, which was very irritating to you. But somewhere in there is the better quality dense nutrition and the lessening of irritation from a lot of plant and refined carbohydrate matter begins to balance these symptoms out. And a lot of times if we, we can do it, we can do all of this with diet. Yeah, Jay, I mean, that's, that's an interesting, I want to just start to interject here. I mean, it's a very interesting observation about the liver, you know, and it's kind of nice when we, we do these podcasts and you kind of maybe put things together. We had, again, Don Lehman on here talking about in animal studies, uh, animals that are fed higher protein diets do not deplete their liver glycogen overnight. And so they end up, they end up having, you know, decent glycogen stores throughout the night. Whereas people on a high carbohydrate diet, their, their glycogen, well, I shouldn't say people, animals on a high carbohydrate diet, their glycogen stores in their liver drop precipitously overnight. And then they wake up starving and then they got to, you know, they got to shove some, you know, if it's a human, you got to shove cereal in there. So it'd be interesting to see if that depletion of liver glycogen in, in a exactly. higher diet, hundred percent o'clock in the morning, and now all of a sudden it's causing whatever cascade is occurring to cause the hot flashes. And in, in the, in the well, let me speak to that to a second because um, this is something I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have remembered to talk about. One of the one of the one of the most predominant things that I see clinically with women in this in this age group and insomnia is that sometimes it's not related to estrogen and progesterone and menopause and whatnot. It is clearly related to what we call nocturnal hypoglycemia, where these people, they go to sleep at night, they, they run out of, their, their blood sugar drops low. The body's response, when they've been under this carb-driven lifestyle forever, the body's response to, in the middle of the night to hypoglycemia is to release from, you know, usually from the adrenal glands to, you know, stimulate something called norepinephrine to basically to, to shunt that over to the pancreas to say, we need you to release glucagon to straighten out this blood sugar crash that we're having. Well, in the, you know, you know, would know this, Sean, and um, in the presence of norepinephrine in your bloodstream, good luck staying asleep or sleeping, right? So that you're exactly what you're talking about is what I'm seeing is that when you better fuel the liver, you're got a much better chance at you know, of sleeping well. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, 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 it's fascinating. Um, do, you th do you think, um, I'm just wondering out loud, you know, about uh, other modalities that are out there. I know, I know there's 
people talking about cold immersion. There's people talking about uh, red light therapy, hot, you know, sauna, infrared sauna. Does any of that stuff have any relevance to your practice or do you, or is that too far out there for you to, to have time to mess with? Yeah, I would say that, um, you know, I've, I've got a intellectual interest in some of it. It's not really, I haven't turned any of that to application of that. So, you know, I, I'm one of those people to just to bring up another name who is somewhat gets, gets interested in some of the stuff that like Ben Greenfield will talk about. And then after a little bit of listening to it, I'm like, come on, I got to return to that. I believe that health of human beings is, a, is pretty extremely simplistic. You know, it, it, that, that brought up a point that I wanted to mention about what you were talking about earlier, Sean, was that well, here's what I don't get about the, the vegan community or, or any of them, the vegetarian or whatnot, of what is, the, is the, the lack of understanding that what it took for us to increase our brain size to the place that it is right now as human beings could have never been done so on a plant-based diet. And why is it that they would even want to take the chance of playing around with a dietary practice that more than likely science is showing will shrink your brain? Makes no sense to me. Well, I mean, you know, if a plant-based diet would have made primates a big brain, the chimpanzees and monkeys would already have a big brain, right? I mean, right. It's just as simple as that. I mean, some people argue that cooking, but I mean, I, I, I don't think that's the case. I mean, we look at Homo erectus and we look, you know, if, again, this is, there are people who don't believe in evolution, but yeah. Homo erectus went from an 800cc brain up to about a 1200cc brain prior to cooking for the most part, just because they were killing these big mastodons and mammoths. They got good at it. And, and that was the fuel that required to, to power that big energy hog brain that we have. And so- yeah. Yeah, I mean, eating plants just doesn't do it. Yeah, I agree with you on that 100%. Right. Now, again, let's circle back around to what, you were, you, what your original question was because I got, I got off point there. So here's what I do believe, and, and again, I think we would all be in the same camp of the fact that um, there is no doubt that if you were looking for how to, to optimal potentialize yourself for, for health and well-being, you've got to take into account that things that, that hormetically – uh, stress our bodies are probably beneficial. Now, I'm not, not not necessarily saying dietary wise. We're still trying to find out whether there's any real, real benefit to hormetically stressing yourself through eating a bunch of vegetable fiber or something like that. But I'm talking more about things like heat and cold and placing yourself in situations that would have been, you know, uh, because this is what definitely got us here. We would not have gotten here if we weren't challenging, being challenged by environmental factors and we had to be, we were chased by large animals and we had to go through periods of time of lack of food and, and in a fasted state, whether we wanted to be or not, um, extreme temperatures, things like that. I, I think that it's worth, you know, the people that I see that do that, maybe you do, um, expose themselves, you know, routinely to some type of environment, even like a, you know, finish your shower with ice cold water for 30 seconds or whatnot. My, my intellectual sense and, and, and been doing this long enough would suggest that, um, there, there would be positive effects from that. I believe that. Now, are they required? Don't know, but I think they're probably add some benefit. Yeah. I mean, By the way, Zach, that, that, that lizard that you, <laughs> the Gila monster. <laughs> it made me. It made me think of just that. To me, that's um, that's just a little bit of a hormetic stress to see some thing that looked like almost like a three foot dragon while you're we while you're we out on a run. 
Yeah. And and, and 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 I wouldn't have known until you you know wrote your little blurb about it that that's a that uh, if I'm correct that's an absolute poisonous animal. Yeah, it was. Folks who are listening are interested, I posted on my Instagram account, I had been running this place called Mount Ord, that's about an hour from where I live, and um, it's kind of a bit remote out on the Mogollon, or near the Mogollon Rim, and this uh, fairly rare lizard called uh, a, Gila, a Gila monster um, walked across the trail as I was running down, and thankfully it's bright enough colored, and I recognized it before I got too close, And um, but yeah, it's, it's pretty poisonous, but it's also incredibly slow. So like, unless I had almost fallen over on the trail and rolled over it, it probably wasn't going to mess with me too right. much. Um, but yeah, I mean, you definitely feel a response. I certainly jumped a little right. higher than I thought I was capable of when, <laughs> when I saw it. My question was what it tastes like, Zach. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I, I, I didn't stick around long enough to find out. <laughs> uh, no, no you, you brought up yeah, Ben Greenfield's coming on our podcast. Uh, oh, good. Sometime we'll ask him about the wacky stuff he does, you know, the drinking ant juice and injecting oh, uh. stem cells and all this crazy stuff. I mean, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's good somebody's out there pushing and trying that stuff, but you know, you got to say there's got to be some, some, some return on that investment and it probably always doesn't pay off. But yeah, I mean, I do think, you know, that's the thing about hormesis, you know, we talk about that and, you know, you can get, you know, exercise can be hormetic, you know, that sort of stuff, you kind of low stress adversity. And then we talk about, well, you know, maybe spinach is hormetic, you know, but then again, spinach comes with like oxalates. So sure. do, can we get the, can we get the hormetic effect without the, the extra the damage, yeah. stuff in there as well? It's interesting. Um, do you have, are you in solo practice now, Jay, or do you have partners or do you have people that are in your community that think you're, you're just a wacko or what's, what's, uh, what's the deal in your local, local area? Um, well, okay. The first part of that question is Sean is that I'm in the process right now of, of, um, and almost have completed moving out of clinical practice. Um, every, everything I'm doing right now is really, uh, building out, doing consulting online all over the world. That's, that's so much more fun to me because in the, the, the benefit of that, in the nature of, of how I practice now, um, you know, I would, I would do things like physical exams and things that needed to be done in the office so infrequently anyway that I don't even really need to do that. But the other part of that question is, um, you know, absolutely for, I've got, I got tons of friends uh, that are medical doctors that here in Charlotte or whatnot, who think that, you know, that, you know, I've lost my mind. And, 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 but the, but the thing about it is, is that if, if, if I can get them engaged for even a few minutes, I can see that they, you know, they understand, well, you know, that makes a lot of sense because again, you can't talk yourself out of, you know, the, these conversations that we have on a daily basis. So there, and, and, and they are so thirsty for something different than what they have been doing all along. I mean, I feel for doctors, and I'm sure you do too, um, based on you know, probably what your early life in clinical medicine was like, of to think about that, that, that the only toolbox that you have when somebody comes in to see you is um, either I'm going to write you a script for some type of synthetic drug to basically try to remove the symptoms that you just presented to me, or we're going to schedule you for a surgical procedure. And that's really all that I have to offer you. Um, th that's gotta be, that's gotta be hard. I mean, it's really gotta be hard, but that's all, that's your, that's your only toolbox. So, 
Again, yeah, I think a lot of them think that I'm out there, but I think that they're starting to pay attention to not only, not just because they think that I might know something, I think they're going, man, there's got to be more to the practice of medicine than what I do on a daily basis. Like how many people can I write a script for a statin for all day long, you know, whatnot, and still feel good about it. Um, I'm, you know, here in Charlotte anyway, I don't know if this is nationwide, I don't pay attention to it, but I can tell you what, in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is a big hub of healthcare, um, doctors are dropping like flies. I mean, they're leaving the umbrellas of the two big systems we have there, the, the CMC and Novant Healthcare. They are, they're running and going, you know, I'm done. You know, you guys are telling, you're not even letting me practice medicine between the insurance companies, the drug companies, and the umbrella of the organization that they're under. It's like, you know, you've, you've sucked my life out of me. So they're looking, they're, they're prime and looking for, you know, you're seeing it probably down there. All these people are opening up these concierge practices and whatnot because they are fed up with the system that's taking advantage of the doctors and saying, listen, we need you to see 70 people today and, you know, and, and write scripts as fast as possible. Yeah. It's a sad world. I mean, yeah. yeah Jay, you brought up an interesting topic. Uh, and we talked about, I think it was Dr. Brett Sure. We talked about this a little bit where, um, I mean, you can look at modern technology, social media and all that stuff um, in a in couple of, well, a ton of different lenses. But one of the lenses that I like is, if you want to put a positive spin on it, is the level of reach you can ultimately get if you invest your time and energy into doing something like that. Whereas for someone like yourself, in order to actually take advantage of your degree in the past, you kind of have to join some you know, big organization. Whereas, whereas now there's options outside of that if you can kind of navigate those waters well. And um, it's interesting to hear you say that you're seeing a lot of other doctors kind of go that route or branch out and kind of explore that. And do you think that that's something that's going to be a big continuation going forward with, with doctors who are more interested in lifestyle-based medicine? And do you think there's going to be some hurdles? Or I mean, I'm sure there will be, but right. do you foresee or are you fearful of any big hurdles from some of these big organizations that were, are inclined to try to keep doctors under that umbrella? Well, twofold. One is what, what I'm not sure of yet is that what I see in this this mass exodus of a lot of practitioners, I'm not sure that I that I, I always understand whether their motivation in doing that is monetarily, where they can make a whole lot more money by running a you know a concierge practice that you buy in and pay five thousand dollars up front for that gives you you know, a right to make calls to the doctor or be met at the, at the emergency room if you need to be there. So whether it's monetized or whether it's because they want to make a bigger impact in people's health, I'm not sure I know the, the answer to that question yet. Um, what I do expect, and, 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 you know, Sean puts this out there in, in another context, and I don't spend enough time thinking about, and I probably should, especially after what happened yesterday or the day before with the Facebook stuff. But I think that we better be prepared for a strong pushback from not only the food companies, but people like Facebook or whatnot, ability to shut down an entire page of 1.6 million people who are practicing something that really has made a benefit to them. And they can come in there and just eliminate something like that. That's scary. I mean, that, that that's kind of frightening. So I'm, I'd like to, you know, hear you talk about what your thoughts about that are. 
Yeah, I mean, this is, and I've had, you know, some of my stuff taken down just because it's considered offensive. And I mean, it was a picture of a lion eating some meat. Uh, you know, I get mass reported, you know, obviously vegans don't like me very much. And so they, they'll mass report. And so they have these automated systems. If, if someone gets mass reported, they just automatically shut you down. And I think that's what happened to Facebook in, okay. uh, in South Africa. And so they actually came back up. Um, I, I petitioned my stuff. It wasn't brought up yet. So I do think there are, uh, you know, groups that disagree. We see that not only with diet, but with other, you know, political stuff. Where, where social media is, you know, it doesn't guarantee spe- freedom of speech. It's not, you know, it's not subject to the U.S. Constitution like right. you know, the rest of us are. And so certainly that's a possibility. Do I think that pharmaceutical companies, processed food companies uh, have to, some things at stake if a bunch of people stop prescribing medications and lifestyle? Absolutely, I do. Do I think they're going to push back? Absolutely, I do. Do I think they'll try to pass legislature that'll be unfavorable to pe- people like you and I? I think that's going to happen. I think we're going to see that. And I think, you know, hopefully there'll be enough people that have an interest, you know, and the market will dictate what eventually happens. And so, you know, there may be some smart entrepreneurs that figure out how to, you know, do what you're doing and, 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 and make a system where, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's outside of that, that traditional model where it's just, you know, let's crank through 60 patients a day, you know, let's code as quick as we can. Let's get the billing department satisfied and keep going and, and deliver kind of at best mediocre care for a lot of people. Whereas, you know, I think most most physicians, I think, go into this wanting to do a good job for their patients, wanting to make an impact. And unfortunately, the system we're saddled with doesn't do a very good job of that. I mean, it's great for acute things. I mean, hell, if I if I break my femur, I want to go I want to go to a damn ER and, and get my Absolutely. femur fixed. But if I'm if I'm struggling with diabetes or obesity or hypothyroidism or whatever, I mean, I think there's better options, quite honestly. And I think you know, guys like you and you know, hopefully, I'll get some of this stuff going in the near future. <laughs> and do this and more and more physicians i'm encouraged to see more and more physicians and we do see the the the, the sort of the burnout statistics we see the suicide rates among physicians is disproportionately high particularly with female physicians uh relative to general population and it's a shame and it's and it's almost assuredly due to this system We've, we've had an influx of administrators and and no increase in relative amounts of physicians and so we're being administrated to death uh, in the name of profit, you know, you know, medicine went from an art to a business about 20 years ago. And, uh, it, you know, the, the effects are, are being seen now, not only in the healthcare we deliver, but in the, the health of our physicians as well. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So what, uh, what are you working on now? Are you writing another book? No, I'm still finishing up the one I have. I've got, I've got, I've got, uh, the editor came back, you know, they, you know, I'm a little sort of, they, they kind of wanted to sanitize it a little bit. I was kind of, I kind of put a lot of in your face sort of graphic stuff in there that may not jive well with a diet book. And so I don't know if I'm going to get that in there or not. If not, I'm going to have to have an unedited version because you know, I, I tend to be a little uh, off the cuff sometimes. Um, yeah, but that's, that's kind of what we got going on. Uh, you know, animalbasednutritionnetwork.com is coming out soon. It's going to be a place and I, I, I want to include you know, locations of physicians like yourself and others that w- are willing to treat people that are on animal-based diets and are not going to harass them about their cholesterol and tell them to go plant-based. And so we're going to add to that list and, and have that. And there's a bunch in trying to get the producers involved, you know, have people where they can go direct to the ranchers. Cause I think we really need to support our ranchers uh, that are providing us this stuff because right now it's, you know, it's four processors like Tyson and Cargill that are inv- already investing heavily in fake meat and, and, and synthetic lab meat. And they're going to, they're not going to, probably act in the best interest of the ranchers. And I think we as consumers have to support these folks. And so Absolutely. that's one of my goals is to do that. Hopefully we can get more sustainable regenerative agriculture 
done. It doesn't mean we have to replace the entire system, but I think more of that's going to be better. Um, yeah, so that's that's what I've got going on. I mean, you know, among other things, just trying to trying to, you know, I don't know. Just I, I got too many things going. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> Keep up with it all, but right. uh, we're we're having a great time with the podcast. Um, Jay, is there? I want I I do want to because I know women are going to be really interested in this episode. I want to really sort of pound this down. Tell me the biggest mistakes you see with women, you know, going into menopause as maybe some other physicians. What are what are the things you would not recommend women do that, that are commonly done? Um, well, the biggest one probably that came to mind was because of the, because of the, um, <clears throat> the likelihood that a woman is going to put on some, some, or, or retain some body fat through this period of time because of the hormonal decline is if, if, if somebody doesn't get to them and educate them somewhat, their, their, their first response is going to be. I need to cut fat out of my diet. I need to go on a low fat diet because I've gained five pounds this year or whatnot um, and got to get it off. And so they make that mistake of thinking because they're still ingrained with this idea that fat makes you fat. So if, they're, if they haven't stumbled upon this type of stuff that we talk about, that's probably the biggest mistake because it, it, and the biggest mistake that they're making doesn't even have to do with weight. It's not just that that won't get you what you want in your weight loss. What that will do, well, it, it will exacerbate the majority of the symptoms that you're already starting to experience with menopause will be exacerbated by a low fat diet. So, you know, that would, that, that one sticks um, out the most. Uh, other ones would be, um, and again, this is not necessarily the, the, the women's issue. To me, this is more medicine issue. The number of doctors out there today who, because they might either not support estrogen therapy anymore and, and probably shouldn't because the only estrogen that they would know how to use anyway would probably be a bad idea. So anyway, for those physicians who still uh, feel handicapped because we, I, you know, I don't know what to tell a, 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 a menopause, a, a beginning of a menopausal woman because it's outside of, you know, what I deal with, we're not going to give her hormones. I don't know anything really about diet other than you should follow the standard American diet and remove fat from your diet. So anyway, what I'm getting at is what they typically do is respond by writing a prescription for an antidepressant, which to me is like, you know, it, it's, it's uh, now there is one side that I will give them credit for that in certain women, some of, some of the hormonal issues that can show up symptomatically might get a little bit of benefit from an SSRI. But at the same time, the other, the flip, the other side of that is, is almost like a real huge disservice to a woman to say, we're going to discount all of what you're telling me about through this phase and change of your life. And, and here's my remedy for you. You need Prozac. It's like, um, it, it, it's, uh, it's not very empowering to women at all. So that would be another one that's not you know, necessarily the woman's fault, but it's, it's healthcare needs to look at a more responsible approach to these women. So they need to, you know, first and foremost, know that diet is key during this period of time. Please do not go on a low fat diet. Please look at other options besides letting somebody write you a script for an SSRI. Um, let's see if think of other ones. Um, another one, you know, we kind of talked about earlier is that again, these are, 
knee-jerk reactions to a woman finding that in her late 40s and early 50s that she's picking up weight but her diet hasn't changed is what is she going to do more than likely without good education? I'm going to go start, you know, doing hours of aerobic exercise, you know, when that's the opposite of what she needs to be doing. She needs to be driving her cellular and mitochondrial metabolism through strength training as opposed to aerobic work. So those would be the big ones that I think of. Yeah, I, I think those things make sense to me. You know, we, we, we see that. Um, I have a gal at home who's in that situation, and she's strength training, eating a meat-based diet, you know, and uh, doing pretty good, you know, and I think that's that, that works pretty well. She's maintaining lean body mass, and, I mean, you, you know, she's, you know, fortunate, I guess. Yeah. But I know a lot of women struggle with that. Um, do you find that um, you have women that, you know, you put them on an animal-based or, or heavily animal-based diet, you know, that they still struggle with weight and how do you tweak that? I mean, I know you, you had talked about, I saw some on Twitter about maybe, maybe trying to lean her for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts regarding that? Cause it's very controversial. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a battle even among the carnivore community about how much fat is appropriate. Yeah. Some people think it's the paleolithic ketogenic diet ratio of two to one. There's other people that, you know, Ted Naiman will, will say that, you know, maybe, maybe more proteins, better, less fat. And, and I think it goes back and forth. And I think some, some people respond better to one. Some people respond better to the other. Yeah. What do you, do you see any generalizations with women in this menopausal group with regard to that sort of thing? I do. And again, I, you know, I'm familiar with all the, you know, what you're talking about and the, the different debates out there. I would have to say that, um, well, here's how, here, here's how I would state it in general for you know, women and men. I might be a little bit more, well, well, again, I don't want to say that I align, I would be aligned with Ted Naiman, but I would, I would respect the idea that, um, that in general, Sean, if you've got a bunch of body fat to burn, to get rid of, you're, you know, you're, you're moving towards obesity, the idea of adding a bunch of extra fat to your diet doesn't really, doesn't make any really biochemical sense to me. I, and again, but I got to circle back around to, I do work within a framework of, 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 of patients, let's say 40 to 60 year old women, they are, this is a different thing for them. And where a lot of them get stunk is this, um, you know, the original thoughts on the ketogenic diet, you know, that came from the, the researchers that were mainly using this for seizure control and stuff like that. And then furthered by Dr. Finney and Bullock, um, that, you know, that the diet needs to be, you know, 75 to 80% fat, 20% protein kind of thing. This, this might be great for men and for, if you're trying to control seizures, if you're a 45 year old woman who is beginning the decline of progesterone and estrogen, that is, that is not a good, that is not a good macro ratio whatsoever. You do not need a woman in that. This is where, again, your question was, um, that do I find women that can eat an animal-based diet and, and not be getting the results they want around leanness? That is the typical reason, is because they're having a hard time losing that dogma that I need 75% of my calories every day coming from fat. No, you don't. You could easily drop that down to, let's say, even 60. I might go more for like 50 and raise your protein ratio up to you know, closer to what I was talking about, a gram of protein per uh, desired body weight or whatnot. And that makes a tremendous difference for these women. Now that might, again, we have to keep that in context because that not is not necessarily true 
for a 45 year old man who, um, you know, has adequate testosterone levels and is doing some, you know, any type of training or whatnot, they can get away with a huge amount more fat. Again, I think the rule of thumb, you've heard me say this, I haven't, I don't know where you stand on this, but we'll find out um, because I've never heard you be a proponent of, you know, cooking your food in excess amounts of fat. But I would go with this. I believe that for the most part, the good quality food that we're talking about, and to me that is my diet basically looks like, you know, steaks, um, you know, I eat a lot of lamb, um, I eat a lot of sardines, things like that. There's no reason to add any fat into these things other than that, then I might want to grease the pan up a little bit just so that something doesn't stick to it. But other than that, a ribeye has got plenty of fat in it already. So these people who are out there dousing it in, cooking it in a, a quarter, you know, half a stick of butter, why? You know, why are you doing that unless your whole goal is something like, again, seizure control or you're trying to produce massive amounts of ketones because of some health problem or risk factor that you have. That's a different conversation. But for the most part, people just don't need to be adding fat to a good quality piece of meat that's already got fat with it. I mean, that's the way I see it. And, I, and again, I do see women respond a lot of times in that group to when they up their protein a little bit, decrease their fat by a little bit, by in no means am I saying eat lean protein, because I, I believe in the rabbit starvation thing, and I believe that chicken is not a very good answer to anybody's problem. So I'm not, not saying eat dry chicken breast by any means, but you just don't, for the most part, need to add a lot of fat to what you're, what you're preparing if you're, if you're eating steak. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would generally agree with that sentiment. I mean, I think the, the, the sort of the phenomenon of bulletproof coffees and butter coffees and, you know, all that stuff, I mean, it may assist people into transitioning into a fat-based metabolism, but I think long-term just taking in all this fat, particularly exot, you know, you know, rendered fat or exogenous fat probably isn't, isn't the best idea for most people. There are some there, I mean, I will concede yeah. there are some people that seem to do okay with that or, or even, even thrive on that particular scenario but i would say for many people uh, i would agree that i think the, the the meat itself probably has adequate fat uh, for most people i know for you know for me personally and again this is all unfortunately this is a lot of just personal observation sure. and, and group observation what we're seeing and i think most people will find that um you know focusing on fattier cuts of meat you know, maybe ribeyes and short ribs and you know briskets and stuff like that often is just plenty adequate. There are some people that even add, you know, actual beef fat to that, you know, sure. for some reason. But I, I do agree that, you know, you know, gratuitously slabbing on, you know, you know, a couple tablespoons of butter on your steak may or may not be the best strategy. Now, again, if you are lean already and you've right. got a lot of energy needs, expenditure needs, and you need the energy, I mean, I do think, you know, we had Ben Bickman on the, on the program a while ago and he talked yeah. about dialing in fat and it was controlling carbs and I can't remember what the hell. Anyway, it was just get your protein in, make sure that's covered. And then the fat's kind of a lever you move up and down based upon where you are body fat wise, where you are energy expenditure wise and fueling wise. And, and for, for many people, it doesn't have to be 80% fat. It can be lower. I mean, my, my personal diet is probably in that 60, 65, maybe 70% range, you know, I mean, uh, but I'm taking in a lot of protein. I'm probably, three, four, five, 500 grams of protein a day some days, which yeah. is excessive, but I'm a big guy and I, and I, and I train hard. So I don't know, Zach, do you have any comments? Yeah, I wanted to ask Zach that myself. Zach, how do you, what do you find with your, how does fat intake 
play into what you see with your athletic performance and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it it's kind of similar in the sense that you just have to pay attention to context. So for me personally, like, you know, there's, I share this example all the time, but like if you pluck a day out of the calendar year, for me, you might find the day where I'm running the entire day and you know burning like 10,000 calories or something like that. Right. And then you might find a day where I'm, you know, after that day where I'm just sitting around mostly and, you know, basically just my resting metabolic rate. So like for me, it, it, I just tend to, you know, fluctuate fat up as energy demands necessitate it. So uh, it can be something as simple as I'll have like, if I, if I have like ground beef, that's like 80, 20 or something like that. You know, if I'm just recovering, I might just add some salt to that and eat that versus, you know, a day where I'm training for three hours or something like that, then I'll might have that same ground beef, but I'm going to put some like clarified butter or some beef tallow or something on top of just to kind of meet those energy demands. Um, and that's kind of how I do it. And it, it's, it's one of those things where I think people feel like it's kind of complicated, but really it's just one of those things where once you put it into practice, you start to kind of be able to trust your intuition and you start to kind of recognize different trends. Like, well, if I'm, if I'm really, really hungry, you know, because I trained hard, then, you know, I'm probably going to add a little more fat to the, to the meal. Or if I'm really craving more of the, more of the fatty flavor, then, you know, that's probably my body saying like that this is a, a necessity right now. Um, so that's kind of the way I, with the way I look at it is I look at the energy expenditure more or less, and then add more if I need it. Don't, if I don't. Let me ask both of you guys this, because, uh, something that I'm playing around a little bit more as of my own experiment, but do, do both of you feel like when we, when we bring up something like organ meat that, Hey, you know, it sounds like a great idea. It's certainly nutritional, nutritionally dense food and all that kind of stuff, but not really necessary. Or you think people should be actively, um, you know, playing around with this. So what do you, what's your thought? Yeah. My thought is not, and I've, I've talked about this many times. I certainly think, you know, I, I mean, it's clear organ meats are nutrient, they're nutrient powerhouses. I don't think there's anything wrong with eating, including them in the diet. And I think for people that enjoy them, like them, uh, and they are showing a benefit, absolutely they should be included. I can't give a blanket recommendation that all people need to include them because I've just seen so many people thrive without them. So I, I, I just, I just hesitate to say everybody needs to do that. Um, from a, you know, I mean, I think from a hedging your bets standpoint, it seems to make sense. But at the same time, you know, I mean, if we think about what we know about nutrition, I should have died long ago of scurvy. And so when I, when I see that that doesn't hold up, I have to question some of the other assumptions we've made. And I, I just sort of sit in the back of my mind. I say, I got to look at the people that have been doing this for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. They're not eating organ meats. They're literally thriving. And so I have to say, well, maybe we don't know it all. And clearly we don't know it all. And so you know, I think there are a lot of people out there, whether they're obese, whether they're they're skinny or thin, that are malnourished. I mean, I don't think obesity is not compatible with malnourishment. I think there's a lot of people that are obese that are starving for nutrition other than calories. And I do think that some of these people would benefit from a period of time where they eat very, very nutrient dense, and it may restore some of these, you know, whatever mineral stores, vitamin stores that we have, fat soluble vitamins, and so on and so forth. Uh, that that makes sense. And you know, I, 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 I think it's a very good tool. You know, if you need vitamin supplements, get it in the form of food. Uh, but I think at baseline and many people that are healthy doing well, probably don't need to necessarily need to include them. I mean, I haven't, I mean, I eat 
every once in a while I'll have some organs, but it's usually when I'm visiting somewhere and they give them to me. I'm like, okay, I'll try it. What the heck? But I don't go out of my way to eat liver once a week or anything like that. I mean, honestly, I just don't find it that that palatable. And I mean, I don't care how nutritious something is. If it's not palatable, the nutritional value becomes zero because you're not going to eat it anyway. And I mean, you know, I just have to say, what are the results? And I, and I get, you know, we talk about this argument, this sort of evolutionary historical argument. Yeah, these indigenous tribes always prized organ meats, but they were, they were subsistence people. They were starving, so they ate every single thing. And I think that's contrasted to uh, what happens in, in, a, uh, a, in times of plenty. And I think, contrary to what many people think, I think humans probably lived in a world where fatty meat was very abundant. I mean, if we look at the megafaunal populations, you know, from 50,000 years ago and before, it's pretty clear that we had a lot of those big animals. We were very effective at killing those. And so some of that behavior we see where we're seeking out internal organs may have just been fat seeking behavior once we went to leaner animals, because when we had these fatty mammoths, which were, you know, as we know, are largely got a lot of fat in their tissue, you can get all the fat you need. You know, we're looking for protein and fat. We're not, people back then weren't looking for vitamin A. They weren't looking for vitamin D or E or K or anything like that. They, all they knew is they needed to get nutrition. They needed to get enough protein and enough energy. And they could either get it from picking fruits off the trees or eating from the fat from the animals. And so I think when we ran out of the big animals, and we did, whether it's climate change or human over, overhunting, which I think most of the evidence shows human overhunting did that. When those animals went away, we had to go to leaner animals. And when we went to leaner animals, where is the fat on a lean animal? Where's the fat on a human? You know, a lean human, all the fat is, you know, is, is around the, the, you know, the perinephric fat, the pericardial fat, the omentum. And so that's where you're going to concentrate on getting the fat, you know, in, in the brains and the marrow or whatever. And then, and, and then, you know, and then you get, then the protein's pretty easy to come by. And so I think that's kind of where this sort of misnomer that yeah. we must eat organ meats. And, and that's where that evolutionary historical argument, I think, I think is incorrect. I mean, I don't have a time machine. I can't say for sure, but I think some of the archeologic evidence points to that. We were really seeking out fat. And I think that's the key is getting enough fat and, you know, the vitamin soluble, the fat soluble vitamins, you know, A, D, E, and K are going to be found in, in the fat. You know, it may be a little more higher concentration of A in the liver and C in the liver and so on and so forth, but you're going to see, I mean, vitamin C is water soluble. We're going to see those, those, those uh, vitamins are going to be in sufficient quantities, I think. I mean, if they aren't, then I've got, you know, vitamin A deficiency, vitamin right. E, D, and K deficiency, and I, sh and I don't. I mean, I mean, well, maybe I do, but I'm, I'm breaking world records with it, so I'm, I'm right. maybe right. extra good. I don't know. That's my thoughts. That's great. Zach? Yeah. No, I, that's, oh, okay. it's, a, it's a great question. I think, like, I mean, I, I probably certainly fall into the, the bet hedging side of things simply just because, like, um, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert. Uh, but I do a couple things I'm convinced personally of is that organ meats are not going to hurt me in any way. So, you know, certainly not at the degree that I'm consuming them. So one way I kind of, the lens I look at it through is kind of, well, when would I be most likely to possibly need a little bit of the extra vitamins you're going to find or the more dense quantities of vitamins you're going to find in organ meat. And it's most likely going to be during the phases of training where I'm doing the most. And that could be partly just from the energy expenditure and also partly because that's the time of year when I do sometimes bring back a little bit of the carbohydrate and some of the vegetable foods. So, you know, if there is anything to be said about those products potentially leaching some of these things away um, through the digestion process, that would be the time of the year or the time of the season that I would see the most efficacy in eating an organ in eating organ meat. So that's usually kind of when I'll do it when I'm, yeah. when I'm following a strict carnivore diet, during phases of like recovery or early training base phase type stuff, 
Um, I'm, I'm not usually eating organ meat during those times. And I don't know if there's anything to do with the lack of plant food in my diet during that phase or not, or if there's, you know, it, it could just all be bet hedging. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think if we look at it from a, just a, you know, let's, let's make the assumption that we're eating a carnivore diet because we know that a plant-based diet has lots of anti-nutrients. It has lots of vitamins that are in inappropriate forms. It has diff, you know, it has things that make it d difficult for us to die, to, to absorb those nutritions. And there are people that aren't dying of vitamin deficiencies and they're not including liver and organs in their diet. Most people just don't. They eat a plant-based diet. They don't, they don't get these vitamin deficiencies. So now to turn it around and say, okay, now I'm eating an all animal-based diet. It has no anti-nutrients. I'm absorbing everything in its natural form. Now I've got to add organs to that. Right. That argument kind of doesn't make sense because it's like, why would I not need it on a plant-based diet, but I need to do it on an animal-based diet? You know, and I, I just, I just don't, uh, you know, I just kind of wonder about that. I mean, at the end of the day, the proof's in the pudding. I mean, I'm, sure. I'm just like, there are, there are like the longest people that have done this diet have not included organments in their diet right. and they're doing fine. And so I think that's the way I view it too. One thing that I'd be interested in, in seeing how this plays out, if I'm alive long enough for it would be do, you know, <clears throat> like I'm fascinated by like the native Americans ability back in the day. And I'm certainly other indigenous tribes or whatnot who had, this um without any scientific knowledge whatsoever that they have um you know documented stuff about that if you if, if they were dealing with somebody in the tribe who had a particular health disorder that they knew how to like for instance you know if it, it was something that looked like a kidney problem they would they would eat kidney and and the first one that i heard about this was fascinating to find out that the membrane around the eye in certain fish um, contains all of these, you know, the, these phospholipids, all these things that are particularly good for eyesight. And they knew, they knew that for their people that were ailing, that it would be a good idea for you to go eat the eyeballs of, uh, of something when you, your, your eyesight was deteriorating and it, and it was beneficial. So I'm, I'm, I'm actually curious about what, whether we will ever find out that by eating something like the heart of a cow, does it have some special affinity for, for, for build, building up better cardiovascular function or, or better heart health or whatnot. It, 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 we could find out that it does, and that would be pretty interesting, that we use that as a, a therapeutic protocol, you know, along with a, with a more meat-based diet, but meat-based with this particular individual who needs to support better cardiovascular function might be a good idea for you to occasionally have a little beef heart in your diet or something like that. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think it necessarily hurts. I mean, certainly I yeah. think if you want to do it, it that's fine. Yeah. Um, I am running up against a time, guys. I got to yeah, get out of here. I got a consult to do. Um, Dr. Wrigley, it is a pleasure having you on. It's, it's interesting to see how you've just, you know, you continue to reinforce, uh, you know, you're seeing it, you know, it's that you're still sticking with this stuff and, and it has continued to, to result in good results in your patients. I think it'll embolden more physicians to at least give it a shot and see what happens. So I'm, I'm, I'm very thankful for your willingness to do this. Hopefully we'll get some case reports in the literature and uh, you know, that sort of stuff. So if you have an interest in that, I think that would help to, to sort of, uh, you know, move the needle a little bit. That'd be Absolutely. fun. Zach, I'm going to jump out. Um, I'll cool. see you back at one o'clock, man. Alrighty. Yeah. Thanks again right, for coming on James. Great to have you. We'll thanks, see you later. Right, hey folks, human performance outliers podcasts is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, 
please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.